going to have a worldwide calamity like the Spanish flu. Now, we were lucky that didn't happen. It didn't happen in the United States. The Western African countries were able uh, to tamp down the problem. But someday, if you've got a head on your shoulders, you say to yourself, this is this is going to happen. Well, I do think we are so much better prepared, but we definitely would not want to give anyone the impression that uh, we're there yet. There is definitely still a ways to go. Uh, the article this month, we mentioned a lot of achievements in that, but we also tried to highlight where there's still some remaining gaps and there's there's still some work to be done before the next severe pandemic. When we think about it from a public health perspective, there are challenges. I think the the institutional challenge that we need to recognize in the U.S. is the fragmentation of public health response, vertically, federal, state, and local, as well as horizontally, because there are many agencies of government that need to operate. We need uh, not only public health, but we need law enforcement, sanitation, social services, and so forth. And so coordination at all these levels with all these different departments um, are really going to be uh, essential. Hello and welcome to this podcast of the American Journal of Public Health for the month of November 2018. We have arrived at the 100-year anniversary of the deadly great influenza pandemic of 1918. A pandemic often unfairly referred to in our collective memory as the Spanish flu. This was by far the worst pandemic of the 20th century. It occurred at the end of the First World War and killed an estimated 20 million people. Adjusting for the demographic expansion since then, a pandemic of similar magnitude would kill 80 million people today. Opinions diverge in public health as to whether the world is prepared to control a similar scourge today and avoid the humanitarian disaster. In the introduction, you've heard Michael Greenberger. He's the director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland. He says we are not prepared. Then Barbara Jester who is a Battelle contractor working for the Influenza Division of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. She says we are prepared, even though there are areas of possible improvement. The third interviewee in the introduction was Mark Rothstein. He's an associate editor of AJPH, and he curated the special section in the November issue of the journal with Professor Wendy Parmet. He says, yes, we are better off than in 1918, but we are nonetheless vulnerable because of major gaps in our preparedness plans. In this podcast, I will explore each of these opinions with my guests and indicate what seems to be an urgent and realistic goal which could actually leave us much better prepared against the next deadly influenza epidemic. 
I am Alfredo Morabia, the Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are October 10th, 2018. Let's start with Michael Greenberger, to whom I asked why he argues that the current capacity of the United States to face a large-scale pandemic is more limited than it should be. Let's assume a, a new pandemic of similar magnitude was yes. going to hit. Yes, and assuming that, in fact, even assuming uh, a pandemic that maybe is one quarter of that size, uh, history has shown that our uh, public health system is not prepared to handle uh, that quantity of uh, treating people who are seriously sick. Now, I want to emphasize my concern here is not with the technical capabilities of either medical researchers or hospitals. I think those technical capabilities are at a very high level. My concern is that funding for public health on both the state and federal level has been paltry, and even as paltry as it was, say, in 2008 and 2009, it's been cut substantially over that roughly 10-year period. In the most recent budgeting by the Trump administration, uh, $1.3 billion were cut from the kind of money that is needed to respond to uh, broad-scale emerging infectious disease, which is uh, a killer uh, to the population. Asked which evidence he had of the non-preparedness, Michael cited a worrisome experience. Well, last flu season, 2017-2018, the flu was unusual Usually a flu is regional, and it's not nationwide. That flu season, because of environmental factors, mostly caused by the increase in global warming, the flu was experienced on a nationwide basis. So the resources, the medical uh, facilities needed, the medicines needed, the care needed, was needed throughout the entire country Something along the lines that the recreation of a flu of the size of the 1980 flu would be. It would not be in the South or the West or the North or the East. It would be all over the country. And we just went through a very minor flu season where we lost, uh, we, we had tens of thousands of people hospitalized. There were deaths. Nothing like we saw in 1918. But even with a more uh, limited kind of pandemic, the nation's public health system was completely over-resourced or under-resourced, I should say. We just saw in the last flu season with a flu, serious, but nothing like a recurrence of the 1918 flu, where the country just didn't have the ability to respond effectively. I didn't ask Michael. Given these concerns, what can our hospitals, health agencies, and academic centers do to better prepare for the next pandemic? What we need is a forward-looking public health policy on the federal level and on the state level saying we must get funds for medical infrastructure and medical research 
so that when the worst happens, and it will happen, we're prepared to do it. Wow, this is quite scary, especially coming from someone who has a long experience with issues of counterterrorism, cybersecurity, and catastrophic health events such as the seasonal flu, but also Ebola, Zika, and the opioids epidemic. Let's now reach out to Barbara Jester to have her perspective on the alleged pending disaster. Good afternoon, Barbara. Good afternoon. So, where are you now? I am actually at home in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, and uh, you work for Battelle, right? Right. I am a Battelle contractor, and I am at the CDC in the Influenza Division. So, tell me, just in a few words, what is Battelle? Oh, Battelle is a nonprofit organization. It provides a lot of different services. You could look at Battelle.org. Um, it actually goes way back to uh, Gordon Battelle and his work with the uh, Xerox machine. We're quite an old company. <laughs> I see. But so, we do so, a, a whole lot of different things now. We There's laboratories across the country we manage, but um, I work in the division that provides services for different clients, and CDC is one of our clients. So, so let's start with the achievements. What are they? Well, I think there's been... <laughs> Uh, achievements in just about every aspect of influenza. Um, remembers in 1918, the virus hadn't even been discovered yet. So there was no way to diagnose whether someone did indeed have influenza. So now we just have a plethora of ways to diagnose the condition. Uh, we have handheld genetic sequencers, and we also have a lot of uh, prevention. We have vaccines that are available. We have treatments, we have medications, we have treatments for complications. Uh, we're just, we have surveillance so that we know what influenza viruses are circulating all around the world. So we're light years so, ahead of where we were. <laughs> so, so let's, let's, you know, let's imagine a scenario because I'm afraid this may be a, sound a little bit too abstract. Let's have this scenario of a deadly pandemic of influenza Uh, reaching the shores of the United States. How are we prepared? Okay, well, if it had started in another country, we probably would have been able to see it coming because we have the World Health Organization Global Influenza Surveillance System. So we, have a, we stay on top of what viruses are circulating. If we had had a lot of advance notice and we had been able to evaluate this virus, We might even have been able to start uh, production of a pandemic vaccine and started stockpiling that vaccine. So, so how much time of, does it take to, to prepare the, uh, the vaccine? At this moment, it takes too long. One, one of the key goals for uh, Health and Human Services is to reduce that time. But like we saw in 2009, at this point in time, it really takes longer than what we would want it to, to really reduce the, the death and disease. But so, Barbara, what, what you're telling me is compared to 100 years ago, 100 years ago, we didn't know what was coming. Now we know what's coming, but we're just as doomed. Oh, no, no, no. We are definitely not 
not just as doomed because we have medications now to treat it. Uh, even before the vaccine is ready, someone who has influenza, there's antiviral medications now. And uh, again, those can lessen the duration of your symptoms. And if you have uh, develop a secondary bacterial infection, we now have antibiotics, a plethora of categories of antibiotics. And in 1918, that was even before penicillin. And right. uh, the, yeah, and that was most of the deaths in the 1918 were from secondary bacterial infections. And even right. now, if you, yeah, if you got critically ill from influenza, nowadays we have, you know, critical care and we have ventilator support. So we are much, much better off. Okay. So, so let's say we knew it was influenza. Influenza is in the United States. I have the first symptoms. Where do I get this antibiotic? Uh, at your, at your physician. Again, you can go, uh, to your regular healthcare provider and right in his office, he can test you for influenza. Uh, I just you know, did, rap- I just did, and there were a line going three blocks around his house. <laughs> Impossible <laughs> to reach him. Okay. So what well, in I that do? case, well, now we're going to start talking about some of the, the new strategies that are being developed. Um, CDC has been exercising a strategy called nurse on call, which would, a flu on call, which is a nurse triage line. So there could be that you could just call into a phone number and have a nurse assess your symptoms over the phone and in conjunction with a pharmacy, get you that antiviral prescription. Yeah, that's great. And if I need to go to the hospital... If you need to go to the hospital, you, you know, you're you know, in hope. 1918, people people were dying very fast from that influenza. So, if you need to get more than the antibiotic, and let me go straight to my question. People say hospitals today are not prepared to receive that many people that would, you know, flock towards them in case of pandemic. So. And I would have to agree, uh, just based on last season, we had a severe influenza season. And if you look at some of the headlines, hospitals swamped. That was definitely the case. And hospitals need to keep working on their pandemic plan, and they need to figure out how they are going to surge their staffing and how they're going to triage their care and provide care to a, a lot more people, especially if it's in a situation where many of their own staff might be sick or, or caring for someone sick. Mm-hmm. So what should we do in order to solve this question since we know it's a problem? I think since we know it's a problem, we need to just look at the hospital care coalitions. We need to, we need to, we need to work on it in conjunction um, within a city, the hospital, the emergency uh, preparedness people, they all need to get together and figure out some of these things. But do you see this happening? Yes, I do, actually. Um, and I've been, you know, attending different seminars and hearing a lot about pandemic preparedness as we face this 100-year anniversary. And hospitals are coming up with some some unique solutions, and some of them are having their staff, um, you know, 
talk amongst one another and who will cover for you and who will cover for you. And I will watch your children if you do this. So again, there's just a lot of conversation that's going on and that's where we're going to start. So there's another question I have for you. Maybe that's not in your expertise, but, uh, you know, a lot of people in the United States, it's not so many, but it's a substantial minority uh, doubt about uh, the efficacy of uh, vaccines. You know, there, there are all those fake news about the potential uh, complications of vaccines. Do you think this can impact our preparedness when the next pandemic comes? Oh, I think definitely it can. I, I think we're in a situation now where scientists have, they're competing with a lot of different voices. And if you look at, you know, anti-vaccination groups, they, they have a lot of different platforms. They have a lot of opportunity to spread misinformation and to spread mistruth. And I think what's challenging is that flu, it doesn't a lot of the information doesn't fit easily into a sound bite. <laughs> Some of it is very complicated. And again, when, not if, but when we have the next pandemic, there's going to be things we, we don't know right away, that we can't answer right away, that we're going to have to have a threshold of data to actually make some definitive statements. And I think that's really challenging for people nowadays. If, if you or I want to know something, we Google it and we want to see that answer, you know, seconds later on our screen. And I just think flu communicators have a really big challenge with that. Yeah, but, but Barbara, I mean, I think I had my first flu vaccine in 1980, something like that. You know, around that time, I remember I was already a physician. Uh, so it's, uh, it's 40 years, millions, billions of people have been vaccinated. What do we know about the safety of that vaccine? Oh, we know it's very safe. Yes, there, there's no question. We know that despite misperceptions, we know it doesn't give people the flu. We know that um, the side effects are very minor and very minimal in a small percentage of people. Yeah, safety is not an issue with the flu vaccine. Great. Thank you, Barbara. Anything else you'd like to add to this podcast? Well, just basically... Uh, telling all your listeners to get their vaccine. Remember that um, our pandemic vaccination, that's going to be built upon our seasonal platforms. And so we really want our seasonal platforms just functioning at the highest level possible. We want our vaccination coverage to be much higher than it currently is. So that would just be my overwhelming message. <laughs> so if that's the over, what's a vaccination platform, just a seasonal platform? Just explain to yes, me what is it? The seasonal platform is the variety of ways that people get their vaccinations each fall. Um, they might go to the pharmacist. They Some get it in their public health department. Some go to their workplace. Some go to their physician. So we have a lot of different platforms to provide that, and we want to maintain that demand. Mark Rothstein and Wendy Parmet have commissioned the articles in this issue and summarized their views in an introductory editorial. What's their conclusion? Are we prepared or are we not? 
And that starts with the fact that it's not clear that we have the necessary surge capacity for hospital beds and ventilators and the like. It's been our policy for many years to try to not have empty hospital beds. And if we have a high rate of usage and something like a pandemic occurs, we don't have we don't have the surplus. We we can't empty out the hospitals of people who are post-op or have other serious illnesses. So we need to have this um, surge capacity in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, things are even worse. And we saw this very clearly uh, in the recent Ebola outbreak in in West Africa. Has this capacity been tested? Has it been challenged? How do we know we don't have enough beds and uh, we will not be uh, ready to uh, integrate, you know, a large number of new patients? Well, there have been um, several national and local and regional, you know, simulations and tabletop exercises and the like. And... I think uh, everyone would would say that there is uh, still a problem in, in having this uh, other capacity. I did a study for CDC after the SARS epidemic in Asia, and we surveyed what was going on in all the other countries. Um, and in some places, they have entire floors of hospitals that they don't use, they're not allowed to use unless there's an emergency declaration and they're ready to go. All they need to do is turn on the lights. We don't have that capacity here. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, in case of a a pandemic of that sort, hospitals are the solution. Well, uh, there are things that can only be provided in hospitals like um, isolation rooms. I mean, a pandemic is much more contagious, as you know, than than a bloodborne illness. And we have to keep uh, patients separated from other patients and protected. Uh, We need to protect the uh, staff working there. So it's that's a the hospital is clearly the best best place to Mm be. It, mm-hmm. In some sort of respiratory, you know, outbreak. So this is the official uh, position that we are not ready. Or what do what does the CDC uh, well, say about it? Uh, CDC's position is that we are in much better shape than we were before. Uh, but there are greater challenges. In 1918, the U.S. population was 103 million. It's more than three times that today. Um, in 1918, the worldwide population was 1.8 billion, and it's more than four times that. And um, the other problem is that today there's much greater population density. People from the country have moved to the city, and just dreadful to think about the you know the worst consequences that could happen in a, a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and you think the global poverty uh, is going to play a role there, or? Yeah, I think that's certainly the case. In some places, there isn't even, you know, um, what we would consider to be minimum health standards in terms of healthcare. Um, the number of uh, available uh, healthcare providers, they're 
their facilities, their um, their resources are just not uh, anywhere near what they need to be for a, a public health emergency. Mm-hmm. And uh, in your paper, I mean, your, in your editorial, you, you discuss a fascinating topic, you know, that, that uh, we rarely think about is that uh, there is this growing uh, public distrust in science. And uh, so with all these issues of fake news, mistrust of the media, etc., do you think this may play a role in case of a pandemic? I'm afraid that it will, and I think it plays a role in lots of things. I mean, all you need to do is consider the problem with uh, immunization. In terms of an epidemic, we saw this, unfortunately, in 2009, uh, when we had this H1N1 influenza uh, outbreak. We got a, a vaccine that was... Uh, pretty good, relatively speaking, and uh, 80 to 90 million Americans received the vaccine, but there were 70 million doses that went unused and had to be destroyed. And, and, and who were these people that wouldn't take it? Well, the study showed that political party affiliation was closely uh, associated with trust in the government's public health pronouncements and the likelihood of their taking the vaccine. We just simply can't have this sort of thing happen uh, in in a public health emergency. And so what's your take-home message of of all this? Uh, What should we do uh, in order to be prepared? What should we do in order to fight these fake news uh, campaigns? What are the main recommendations you're doing to the government to uh, allow us to be prepared for this next pandemic? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is try to insulate public health officials at all levels from the partisan politics that are sweeping the country now. And I've proposed certain ways of doing this, such as having the CDC director appointed for a 10-year term, like we do with the, the federal reserve uh, officials, and therefore they would be, in theory, uh, representative of various parties. But what you're saying, Mark, is very worrisome <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's very worrisome because your take-home message is that there is a structural problem. It's not only that we need to do specific things, but that we need to reform entirely our health system and our, our um, a response system. That's what you say. Well, I think um, it's really un- unrealistic to say, think that we're going to redo our structure of government. But what I, what I think we need to recognize is that the way we have our government situated um, presents great challenges, and we need to work harder than perhaps we have in the past to try to uh, integrate these uh, different agencies and officials so that everyone is on the same page. Having interviewed Michael Greenberger, Barbara Jester, and Mark Rothstein, I feel that despite the enormous technological and scientific breakthroughs since 1918, Our preparedness plans are wanting, 
Some issues, of course, are not directly under the control of the scientists or of the public health community, such as the funding in infrastructure and research. But there is one catastrophic scenario which could be prevented with the means we currently have. If there was enough time between the identification of the virus characteristics and the availability of a vaccine for all, the plan may still fail because years of misinformation about the risk associated with the vaccine would convince a sufficiently large fraction of the population to refuse to be vaccinated. An information campaign about the safety of the vaccine and the decisive importance of being vaccinated is urgently needed, and it could well receive a bipartisan support. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their times and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob composed the sad folk song theme, combining guitar and harmonica. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe on your iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or on another app. That's it. Thank you for listening.